last week specifically, we talked about interpretive methods of tackling Matthew 24, and uh, then we just bullet-trained our way through the entire passage as, a, uh, as an introduction, as a survey, as a, your little prophetic seminar for the week. And um, naturally, uh, questions are going to arise, and if... Uh, well, naturally, questions are going to arise for the curious. And this is actually something I wanted to push one of my friends on uh, recently. Uh, life is interesting when you're curious. Um, and Scripture is not just interesting, but it is sort of nosedives from the sky level right into the living room when you're curious. Um, your view of God is really going to shape your everyday life. But you're not going to have much robust view of God, who He is, what He's doing, and what He's going to do, unless you're curious. And so I would encourage you to uh, be curious about prophecy. Um, be really curious about it. Uh, be interested, be looking into it. And so for some of you, that might mean you have to read something uh, or listen to something. Uh, that's great. In fact, as a complete side note, uh, not complete, it has to do with listening to things, which is like a thinly attached side note. My seminary just did a one-day conference on engaging Islam, and it was pretty fantastic. I haven't listened to much of it, but they have the whole audio now of it, and it's like 15 seminars on engaging Islam and Christianity and Islam side by side, and it's just meant to be an apologetic resource. Uh, I think it's... I can give you the link to it. It's on Vimeo. They have... Uh, alumni got it for free. I don't know if I'm allowed to, like, hey, you can have it for free, too. But I don't think they'd mind. They generally kind of encourage that kind of thing. So if you're interested at all and would like to get uh, about 15 seminars for some of the experts from my seminary, some people who have spent a lot of time engaging the Muslim community, uh, researching it, doing research on their text, that'd be something you'd like. Just let me know because it's just um, audio you can download, burn a CD, listen to it in the car if you want. Uh, likewise, there's a lot of prophecy. In fact, just this week, I went to sermonaudio.com and they had uh, my man, uh, Walt Kaiser Jr., did a six-part series at a church on Israel and the church and the coming of Christ and premillennialism. And I listened to a chunk of that this week, and it was it was really good. This guy's top-notch. He's like the grandpa you wished you had. He was just sort of amiable. Um, actually, I liked my grandpa, so I didn't wish I had Howard. Anyway. But um, not Howard, Walt Kaiser. But a nice guy, but brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. So I recommend it. Uh, but that said, uh, just a couple questions that have arisen from the text, and for some of you who weren't here last week, that'll be like, uh, okay, Matthew twenty-four, read it sometime. Um, and one of the things we talked about last week was, were the disciples asking one question, or were the disciples asking two questions? And brought it up again and said, so, is there any clue? Is it just one of those, oh, it's a question, you know? Or is there actually some textual evidence which tells us whether they're asking one question, whether they're asking two questions, and how that, you go about interpreting the rest of the chapter as a response to one question, or as a response to two questions? Were the disciples looking for something different? with regard to the sign of Christ's coming and the sign of the end of the age? Or are they looking for one sign for two things? Or is Christ coming the same thing as the end of the age? Because clearly there's one question. When will these things be? When's the temple going to get destroyed? Verse 3, they ask two or three questions. First one is, hey, you said the temple's going to get destroyed. When will these things be? And secondly, 
what is the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Um, and actually, I did quite a bit of research on uh, Greek syntax. Not something... You'd have to be really curious <laughs> to like get into Greek syntax. But it was interesting, actually. Once you get into it, these things tend to be... There's a rule called Sharpe's Rule. And Sharpe's Rule is actually significant for textual studies of the Greek New Testament because this guy, uh, Alexander Sharp, he's actually called the Abraham Lincoln of, of England because he was instrumental in the liberation of um, slaves in, uh, in Great Britain during the time of the empire. And he, in his spare time, taught himself Greek and Hebrew and did a lot of syntactical research and he was really interested in proving, beyond a shadow of doubt, from the text of Scripture, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so he looked through all the instances of a certain combination of words, which was when they list two things together, like the God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, or we give thanks to the Lord and Savior. And he wants to know, is it two things, or is it one thing? Because a lot of people at the time were saying it's two things. And he wanted to say, hey... It's, the same, it's just referring to the same person twice. It's an identical reference to... And this is, uh, this is why you get into things like uh, meaning and referent. Two things can have the same meaning and refer differently. Or two things can have the same referent and mean <coughs> different things. Uh, that actually becomes significant in Matthew 24 as well. When it talks about this generation. And you'll, some people will say, Hey, generation refers to the people of Jesus' time, and then later you're saying generation refers to the people at the end of time? Well, you've changed the meaning of generation, and the answer to that is generally, well, no, we just changed the reference. Like, it means the same thing. I mean, those people who are alive, it's a generation's worth of people. It just refers to something else. Language works like that. It can refer to something else. Um, and so it's important for a text like this where you're saying you're changing, well, no, I'm not changing the meaning. It just happens to refer to something else. Happens a lot with words. Father means something different to me than it does to Annalise and to Jake because they have a different reference when they refer to father. But it means the same thing. It's the biological parent. Um, same thing with like morning star and evening star. Actually have different meanings. You know, one is the first star that rises and it's a planet that rises a bright light in the morning. First one to come up. Or last one to appear in the, you know, whatever. First in the evening, last in the morning. Different meanings, but they refer to the same. It's the planet, Venus. That's the reference, but the meanings are different. So you have this distinction between meaning and reference, which, which, uh, which gets into in this, because can two things, which mean different things, refer to the same person? And Sharp goes through every instance in the New Testament where two, it's called substantives, essentially nouns, things that stand alone, that only have one definite article at the beginning of them, the God, and they have an and between them, the God and Savior. And now this happens 33 times in the New Testament, not all of them refer to Jesus. It's sometimes it's just the kingdom and glory, or something like this. And, and every single time, when it's a personal, singular, uh, and there was one other qualification, personal, singular, substantive that have chi and a definite article is this particular thing and it was 
every time, identical reference. Every time. And so it goes a long way to proving these statements about Jesus Christ aren't aberrations, they're not something weird. It's how the Greek language was used. Two things with only one definite article refer to the same thing. Now, the instance in this verse, it says, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And we're looking for coming and end as the sign of coming and end. Now, this is actually doesn't fall into the rule because it's, they're not personal pronouns. They're not personal substantive. They're impersonal. And so there's actually a range of things it can be. And it can be, they're different, they refer to different things, they refer to one thing that's in a class of the other one, this is a subpart of that. And generally speaking, in instances like this, what happens is, the first is subordinate to the second. So generally, when this turn of the phrase is used, the something and so now in your text it might say the end of the age that the is not in the text it doesn't say the end of the age it says end of the age it doesn't mean it's not definite it's just not used there and so it's the sign of the coming and end of age so it, it falls into every part of the category it's singular it has a definite article in front of it but it's not personal substantives, it's impersonal substantives. Now, mind you, a lot of technical Greek syntax there, but what it means is, generally speaking, this would have been their thinking of two things, the first of which is a part of the second. That would be, nor now, mind you, there's lots of counterexamples. Doesn't always happen, there's not one way of taking two impersonal, singular, substantive. It's not one way of doing it. So I couldn't point to every other text. You could point to a kind of, well, this text has two impersonal pronouns and it's, they're just unrelated. Yes, it's true. But generally speaking, when there's two impersonal pronouns, they tend to be the second. Now, sometimes it's the opposite. The second is thought of as a part of the first. Now, the only other insight I can give you into this, which I would say, first off, it looks like they're looking for one sign of two distinct but related things. With their relation, I couldn't tell you exactly, that you can't get that just from the syntax, you have to get that from the context. What's the relation of these two things? What are the disciples thinking, what, how these two things are related? That's just contextual. Like, you have to get into the context and go, it looks like their thinking, end of the age, and Jesus coming are related, and they're going to have one sign. Now, I would point out that they don't use the future verb. They do say, when will these things happen in the first question? That's definitely future. They see, okay, this is going to happen, which makes sense, because he says, I'm going to destroy this temple. When will this happen? Well, obviously it's not right now, so it's going to be in the future. But then they say, tell us when will these things happen, and what the sign of the coming your and end of the age. There's no verb there. So they put in a future verb, but it's not necessarily there. In fact, even the word coming, it says coming there because that's how it gets used by Paul. Paul uses this technical term, perusia, which is, I mean, if you're a study, the end times at all, you're going to run into this Greek word, perusia, which is used 
I don't know, about 30 times in the New Testament. And it, it's technical. It at least takes on this technical element of, it's P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. -S That's how it's transliterated. It, it's this, that is the second coming of Christ. That is, it's not the rapture, it's not, that is the second coming of Christ, parousia. It's used in 1 Thessalonians, it's used in Titus, it's used in, man, like most of the epistles, I think like Philemon isn't, doesn't use it, Jude doesn't use it, 2nd and 3rd John don't use it, but I think it shows up in 1st John, most of Paul, um, Revelation, and it's this technical term that means second coming, second coming, second coming. Now, the first place it's used is right here. Jesus uses it coming, and then he uses it again there in 29 and following when he talks about coming. Uh, and in fact, even in the, um, I think it's used four times in 24 and 25, and even if they knew what time the master was coming, you know, it's, and even in the parables concerning Jesus' second coming, he uses this verb. But that's it, in the Gospels. In four Gospels, it only occurs four times, and they're all right here in this chapter. That's it. First time it's ever mentioned in the New Testament is bang, right there. The disciples say it. Now, in my head, the disciples are not using this in a technical sense. Now, mind you, Matthew probably included this. He probably wrote this after Paul wrote several of his letters. Matthew, I think, was pretty early. Probably the first of the Gospels to be written. But <coughs> Paul, Galatians, I would say before that. First uh, Corinthians is probably before this. And he's already using... This term, technically, Matthew might have known that this word meant that. But, they also used it, because it was a word that meant, they might have used it thousands of times during their time with Jesus. But, I think Matthew knew it would have been confusing for us to see that, because they didn't know what they were talking about. Well, they, they, they didn't mean what Paul meant by it, at least. So it was probably going to be confusing if you saw it all the time in there. But they use it right here. I think they use it, because it doesn't just mean coming, or especially it doesn't just mean, you know, it's all over Greek literature, it's not just Jesus' second coming. It is just a word that means presence, appearing. You're here. You're here as opposed to somebody else. In fact, it's used a couple times that way, even in Paul. Hey, we sent Titus to you. It was great. His coming was great. We really appreciate it. He's here now. He's coming to us. His being here. That's awesome. So, I think that's how they're using it. When are you showing up? In fact, their concept of it when they're asking this question is probably, uh, and, and you actually asked the second question, I have it in front of me. Why would the disciples ask, that, why would they say that? Why would they ask for a sign of the coming of Jesus if Jesus was already were there? Weren't they expecting him to set up his kingdom? You get into Acts 1, and what do the disciples ask Jesus in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends? Are you at this time going to set up your kingdom? That's what they want to know. That's, that's 40 days after this. Hey, not now, right? Hey, we're all here at the mountain. You, you rose from the dead. That's great. Kingdom time, right? Come on. Come on. And he responds, It's not for you to know the time or the season, but... Power will come on you, and you will receive the Holy Ghost. Therefore, go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're thinking, come on, right here, kingdom time. Set it up. 
rose from the dead. So how here do they seem to have this idea of, hey, when, when are you going to be done with you know, the church thing? And a couple thousand years? A couple, couple, couple grand? You know, three, four thousand years? I don't think that, that's not there. It's not, it's not clicking. They see him say, you hypocrites, whole chapter 23, I'm done with the religious structure of the nation of Israel done with it, and then I'm done with the temple, I'm coming in judgment for this temple, and they're like, whoa, when's that going to be? And, you know, what sign are you going to give for your presence and for the, the end? And for them, that's the end of the age is very Daniel terms. The end of time. Daniel uses this kind of terminology for... Christ's kingdom, or for the kingdom of God. So that's not, when you destroy this, when you're done with these hypocrites, you set up the kingdom. Now they have a better understanding of the kingdom of God now. It's not, I don't think it's just this national Jewish, um, it's not just overthrow the Romans and give us, give us Maccabean freedom. I think it's you know, end of time, God reigns among us, we glorify Him. You know, it's, it's good, it is a right thing to want. In fact, when they ask in Acts 1-7, Jesus doesn't say, you foolish people, there's no kingdom in your future. He just says, it's not for you to know the time. As if to say, yeah, you're right, I'm going to set up a kingdom, you got it. What you think, God reigning on earth in Jerusalem, that's going to happen. It's, you just don't know when. So there is no sense of that. Ah, no, you're completely wrong. The kingdom lives in all of us. That, like, that does, it's not it. It's the Holy Spirit's going to live in all of us. There is a sense in which the kingdom lives in all of us. But you're right. Like, the kingdom's coming. It's coming away. So I think they're asking, they see it in what I called last week preterist terms. They think when he destroys, when God throws these stones of the temple down, and comes in judgment, you're appearing in judgment, they want to know what the sign's going to be. What sign are you going to give? In fact, this same terminology is used in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, when the scribes and the Pharisees in the first instance, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the second, come to Jesus and say, what sign do you give for doing all these things? You know, one is on the heels of Gentile inclusion, and one is on the heels of national rejection. I mean, this is when the nation rejects Israel, Israel, Jesus gives them himself, and they say, what sign do you give of this whole, you know, you're the Messiah? What sign are you giving us for this identity that you claim for yourself? You want to reject us? You want to include the Gentiles? What sign are you going to give? And he says to them, what, I give you no sign except the sign of Jonah? And secondly, what is 16? 16 is sign of Jonah, right? Oh, no, yes. And even an adulterous generation asks for a sign. I give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. And in 12, he says, um, verse 38, and even an adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it with sign of Jonah. Both times, sign of Jonah. That's what you're getting. Fantastic, right? Every time they say, what sign are you going to give us? 
he says sign of Jonah and then predicts his own death. Both times. Interesting. And if sign is only used four times in this book, one is 12, what sign are you going to give us? Sign of Jonah. One is 16, what sign are you going to give us? Sign of Jonah. One is 24, what's the sign in the end? And then one is the betrayal of Jesus, the kiss was the sign. Part of the sign of Jonah. I mean, this is fantastic, right? This is just awesome. So here, it's right, right in the midst of all that. Disciples want to know, what's the sign of the end? And in a sense, it's, when I die on this cross, <coughs> we're in the end times. Like, this is end time stuff. The end times, we're living in the end times, in a biblical sense, kind of. But the end of the age... He's like, oh, okay, you want sign? I'll give you some signs to look for. Because he has rebuked, he's in 16. You can read the weather, but you don't know your own sign? You Pharisees, you Sadducees, don't you know that destruction is coming? The storm is coming, Pharisees would say. Can't you see the signs? He's like, when this storm comes, the end of all things, I'm going to give you some signs to look out for. And I forget what question I was answering. Why would the... Yeah, what are they looking for? Are they expecting him to set up his kingdom? And so, they're asking a similar kind of question. What, what's, your, what's the sign of this end? What's the sign of... How do we know that you're doing something about the end? Whew, you know? Like, I think that's the question. It's on the heels of 12 and 16. You come to 24. It's a similar question. I don't think they're thinking... Hey, when you go away for 2,000 plus years and come back, will there be some sort of trumpet or something? That's not the question they're asking. But that's the answer they get. It's much like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 saying, Dear, dear God, is this the end of the persecution of Israel? Is this the end of our dispersion? Can we please go back to the land now? And Gabriel comes, which by the way, fantastic name. Gabriel comes and says... Yes, but you have no idea. The end of the persecution of Israel looks like this. And he lays out, 70 weeks are appointed for my people and my holy city. And just like that, they're like, is this, you're destroying the temple. Is that the sign? Is that how we know? It's the end. What are you doing? How do we know that it's you? And basically it's, here's what it looks like. And he just lays out this catastrophic Yes, you're right. I am going to give a sign. It's not what you think. And he lays it out for them. Uh, so that's what I think they're doing there. Uh, the disciples are asking about the end. And it's not quite how we read it. But Matthew, I think, is brilliant because he's using these words that have like parousia and end and coming. And like we get it. Like they're kind of right. But they just don't know they're right. And so Matthew uses these words and says, you know, they don't know it, but they're asking the right question. It's kind of like John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's kind of a double entendre. It's, you know, behold this Lamb who takes up the sins, and it's got this sort of period significance for, you know, this is specifically the kind of Lamb that takes up sins, and, and he probably doesn't know that he's saying, 
Messiah, Lamb of God, takes away sins of the entire world. And but he is, and he's right. He just might not know. Um, so that is an answer to a couple questions. So you're saying that you think as John um, the Baptist was led to speak those words by the Holy Spirit, you think that possibly the disciples were led to ask these questions by the Holy Spirit? Not even realizing what they were asking? I th- yeah, I'm okay with that. I mean... I'm good. Yeah, I mean, like, I think their words have more significance than they could have known. Like, when they say... What is the sign of the parousia? Like that becomes such a rich theological word that there's just that there's not enough revelation there for them to know. But it's cool that that's the word, and so I'm, I would say, yeah, God's at work crafting this word right here, first instance in the text of Scripture, right ahead in this passage on discipleship. It's so significant. But yeah, there's not enough theological back content for them to have known. So yeah, God's just and. Now, mind you, yeah, I mean, God had them use it, and then God had Matthew put it in there because they used it. But Matthew might, in fact, have known more theological significance about it. So his inclusion isn't exactly the same as the disciples using of it. It's sort of like two perspectives on Scripture. But, yeah, I think God is having them say it, and then having Matthew write it, and then has all this cool content attached to it. That's my thing. But they don't know. I mean, they're not asking second coming kind of stuff. Um, is that... Is that... You guys are like, wow, okay. Whatever. Yeah, well, <laughs> Dad likes it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, I've got a couple more questions in front of me, which I'm happy to walk through. I'm going to walk through, but anybody that kind of ring a bell and go... Uh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Is that a thing? Does do disciples say things that they don't realize what they're saying? Or... I can just keep going. You can just well, interrupt I, me. I think Acts 1 is an excellent example of what <coughs> <coughs> up the kingdom now. Um, and yet, God uses that same question to get a much broader. Yeah, that's true. Because they, they're right about the kingdom. They just they have no idea how right and how wrong they are. Kind of thing. Yeah, I like it. Um, but just as an encouragement, like, yeah, there are some times where it's helpful to dive into some Greek syntax, but it isn't isn't like you can't read and understand scripture for yourself at all. And in fact, you read the sign of the coming, of the sign of Jesus coming and of the end of the age, and maybe you guys kind of went, well, yeah, that's kind of how I read it. One sign, two things. Well, yeah, it's great, you know. People translate the Bible pretty well. People who know several languages kind of come together and go, oh, it's, we'll write it quite well. Um, you don't need that. It's cool to get into it. Like, if you get an opportunity to use Blue Letter Bible, the app on your phone, and read a little uh, Greek, how Greek writes things, you can look at that and go, oh, there is no definite article. I wonder if that's significant. And do a little research. It's just, sometimes it's just helpful to know what's going on in the original text. Uh, but here again, we've been doing this for two years, and 
significant Greek syntax has come up once now, so every two years you can just ask me a question, and, and I'll refer you to somebody who knows some significant Greek syntax. So let me be a guidepost for you to somebody who actually knows something. Um, if you want to spend some solid money, there's some fantastic programs out there uh, that would completely eradicate your use for me. <laughs> uh, I use Accordance Bible Software, uh, QuickVerse, of course, Logos Bible Software, maybe of course to me, not necessarily of course to you. Uh, Logos is high-end Bible software, like hover over a Greek word and it highlights the English word on the other side of your page and it highlights the meaning underneath you and you've got more information than you can know what to do with before you've even like clicked anything and like it's, but I mean, we're talking multiple thousands of dollars for that kind of technology. Um, 1994 QuickBurst. Yeah, Dad's got 1994 QuickBurst, which actually does a bang-up job. It does... It does a great job, uh, but I've got some cool, most of that comes from some Greek syntax book that I happen to have because I needed it for Greek class several years ago. Um, yeah, anyhow, just wanted to encourage you, be curious about your Bible, read a couple different versions and you'll probably get about as much as going back to the Greek a lot of times. You read... King James, which has one translation theory, and NIV, which is more paraphrased than some, and ESV or NASB, which is more word for word, and you've covered all your bases there. I mean, get a side-by-side -side parallel edition if you're really doing some hardcore study, but manifestly just buy a, buy a translation you like. Don't listen to somebody and say, NIV, you need ESV. And you get an ESV and you don't like it very much. If you like NIV, by all means, just read the NIV. Because you'll actually read it. Which is far better than having a really good text of scripture on your shelf. Uh, and ask, actually ask another question. It was uh, a little further on in your text. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 22. Um, I feel that... Jesus has transitioned, and in verse 15 to 28, he's really talking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, which is a significant portion uh, of Old Testament prophecy. Um, just the time of Jacob's trouble, this really outpouring of wrath. Uh, specifically in, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about uh, halfway through this final seven-year period of the life of Israel uh, in history. The people or the prince who is to come, this prince who is somehow attached to the Roman Empire, who makes some sort of treaty with, with Israel, he desolates, makes desolate, through some sort of act of abomination, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. And this sets off this course of events, which is this three and a half years of judgment and wrath and atrocity. And um, really brings to a conclusion those purposes that God has for sealing up vision and prophecy and making an end of sin. It's all part of this final week. And you get part of the way through that, and it says, For then there will be a great tribulation, verse 21, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
and verse 22, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. <clears throat> so what, what's, what's being cut short? What's going on? What, what does it mean? Were there more days? Did God like say, I'm going to persecute you for ten? No, it's seven. I cut it short. Hi, lucky you, you know. Well, why not just call it seven and get rid of the lucky bit? You know, I, I don't understand. What, what's going on? What, what's being cut short? Uh, I thought it was a good enough question that I could say, man, I don't really know. Uh, the, here's the only insight I've got. And I read through several commentaries immediately because I just didn't... That, that word, cut short, it's not a common word. It's a compound word. Uh, man, I don't even know. It occurs like in this, the parallel passage in Mark and here, and that's it in the New Testament. You look in the Greek Old Testament, and in one instance, uh, where in the book of 1 Samuel, the conquered Philistine man has his arms lopped off, and they are cut short. And that's it for the Old Testament. Uh, and I don't, I, maybe there's some really significant tie together between that and this. I don't think so. I think it's just kind of a word they use there because it made a lot of sense to say cut short. But here's the only insight I've got. And you may have already come across this. Isaiah 65. Right at the end of the book of Isaiah. Not right at the end. I mean, there's, there's another chapter. So, you know. Really, it's kind of approaching that end. <clears throat> it talks about the people of Israel and their stubbornness. And it says, and it's, and it's Yahweh speaking in verse 65, I permitted myself, in verse 1, sorry, of 65, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Saving you the rest of the chapter, it goes on much like this. Isaiah 65 lays out this open-handed God just offering something which His own people, who are called by His name, have no interest in. They harden their hearts. They prostitute themselves on the mountaintops. They go to every other God... And God, the beckoning God is exactly who they don't go to. And it actually turns into a passage of judgment. Uh, in verse... Um, here we go. Verse 7. It says, But their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains... And scorn me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. Now, this is, this is how God often operates. He takes the evil you intend on others, and He brings it on you. In fact, this is the end of Daniel chapter 9. You go through this whole passage of, of this prince of the people to come, this Roman prince rising up and persecuting the Christians, or the, the nation of Israel, sorry. And, and then basically it ends with, but 
God takes all the evil and pours it on him instead. <laughs> the end. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Really, seriously, don't be that guy. If you were thinking about it. Don't be that guy. Um, and so this is, in relation to Israel, God saying, they've scorned me, therefore I will measure their work into their bosom. Like this judgment that they're working towards evil, and God's like, all right, you want evil? Here's evil. And actually it shows up again in Matthew 23 and 24, where they will, instead of having Jesus have them under their wings, they will to be under the wings of abomination. I mean, it's just this. You, you chose it. You locked yourself into this destiny. But in verse 8, it says, Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I think that's what's going on. He's cutting short the wages of iniquity. And it actually, it gives us an insight into tribulation times at the end and maybe tribulation times generally. It is God measuring out to people what they have earned. <laughs> like this, um, this time of trouble is on Israel not just because an enemy arises but because they have brought it on themselves. But God graciously says, you know what? I'm going to cut it short, for there is benefit in <coughs> them. There is good there. I will act on behalf of my servants. So I say, I see this cutting short as cutting short of what the people deserved, not the cutting short of an allotted amount of time they were going to expect. I got it from Schofield. Schofield. That makes a lot of sense. Um, no. Uh, yeah, Schofield. I think uh, it was like he took you to Mark, and then in Mark he just goes Isaiah sixty-five eight. Uh, Isaiah sixty-five eight. And I got to look at it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's Schofield. Not bad. So Schofield Study Bible. If you don't have one. As um, Woody says in Toy Story 1. Well, he may well. Remember, they're moving. Andy is moving. It's a buddy system. If you don't have one, get one. Uh, yeah, Isaiah 65a, that's, I think, best I've seen. So. Everybody else in their commentary just says, God is gracious, he cuts short a time, and they're not all destroyed. And I went, I don't argue with you on any particular point, but it's not really insightful. It's just a commentary. So the elect there would be that sweetness in the cluster of grace. Yeah, for the sake of the elect. Just some good grapes. We should have sung the uh, VeggieTales song. Man, grapes of wrath? That would have been great. Um, 
I'm sorry to say that of all the questions Anne sent me, those are about the end of the ones I had insightful answers to. But hey, I feel like we got a couple in there. We just we, we swooped in with a couple of good ones. Uh, Anne asked specifically about verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, and it's, Behold, I say to you, this is verse 25. Behold, I have told you in advance, so if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. He is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation that day. And so the question was, what? Essentially. Lightning flashes, God is coming, you know. Corpses, vultures. Every commentator I read says, this is an idiom. It means something that is inevitable. Uh, there's a similar statement to it in the book of Luke at an actually slightly different time where Jesus says in the book of Luke, wherever the body is, the eagles will come. Eagles. The book of Luke says eagles. Kind of a different take on it. Uh, doesn't use corpse. It uses body. Different word, actually. That aside, this passage... Um, here's the options. It can mean God's going to come. It's inevitable. Oh, and I'm going to use this turn of a phrase to give you some insight about what it's going to look like as well. It's not just inevitable. It's also full of carnage. There will be lots of corpses and the birds will eat them. And then everybody references Revelation 19, the battle, Armageddon, corpses, blood up to a horse's hilts. Birds will come and feast on the bodies. That's a lot to get out of an idiom, but maybe that's why he uses the idiom as sort of a, a kind of looking for that Paul Harvey, hey, Revelation is coming, rest of the story. Possible. Um... I mean, it's, if it's apropos, it's apropos. You know, he uses this vulture corpse thing. There will be corpses. There will be birds. You saw it here first. Um, it could just mean, like, he's just using an idiom for inevitability. Like, hey, I'm coming. Like, I'm definitely coming. And maybe they just got me. It was just for them. It was standard idiomatic. An idiom is... Uh, <laughs> idiom, sir. Yes, idiom. <laughs> Uh, uh, Monty Python? Holy Grail? Yeah. I will. I, they didn't seem to like that. <laughs> Just letting them know. It was quite funny. Uh, maybe they were just using idiomatic phrase. Yes? Well, um, up, further up, it says, um, it talks about how there will be people claiming to be Christ. I guess how I make sense of it when they say when he says wherever there is a carcass there are bulls, there the vultures will gather will go you know, believers believers will automatically you know swarm people I mean where there's liars there's followers kind of thing well false or Christ people the false he's just kind of carcass. using that as a well yeah he's kind of yeah there you go yeah because right after that, he says, this is what it's going to look like, so don't go after that, because I'm going to come on a cloud. 
but wherever there's carcasses, which you will be drawn to. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. the buzzards. Yeah, they bring the buzzards. Spot buzzards on. like to eat them. Write that down. Um, John Piper wrote a little article called The Coming of Christ is Like Lightning and Vultures. And it was actually an interesting, and it's just right in line, he's got, what's it going to actually look like? It's going to look like lightning from east to west, and then judgment from above. And here again, it may well be carcasses, and he has in mind those false teachers. But John took it as my buddy John Piper. Which, by the way, I've said this before. He was born to be a plumber. He's a John Piper. I mean, come on. How do people not laugh at his name all the time? I have no idea. Anyhow. Um, could be. That's uh, <laughs> Even the Pied Piper has to relieve himself. Uh, on a separate note, so, and then he goes right into this, and he's coming, and then it goes into this, two men are walking up a hill, one disappears, one remains, you know, two women are gathering grain, one disappears, one remains, and this is, people are leaving in judgment. When Christ comes for the second time, there's judgment, and you don't want to be those people who are disappearing. And it's like vultures, bang, I'm coming, I'm snagging you. And so when Christ comes in his second coming, lightning flashes, and it's like vultures, it's like judgment. It's like swooping down in judgment. And there again, the carcass would be those false teachers. And, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It could be, it doesn't quite seem like the tenure of the statement, but it's right there with, when the Son of Man comes, it looks like lightning, where there's corpses, vultures, I you're like, could be a reference to false teachers are always going to gather a crowd, um, but really it's just death. But there's some agreement that it's an idiom for this is inevitable. When I come, there's inevitability in my coming, but that doesn't really seem to flow, so... Textual thoughts? Thoughts on... Uh, when two men are walking here, is actually will be in the field. One will be. You said disappear. Is, is that taken? It says taken. Just taken. Yeah, but you said disappear. I know. I said. I, I said. I wondered if it was that was a hypothesis. Is that the word that you used there? Snatched, grabbed forcefully. I've never looked that up. Um, that's a fair question. I can look it up. Uh, what's the verse? Uh, one will be taken, and one will be left. Verse 40 of Matthew 24. Do as and go. No, it's actually, um, 
It's a variant of just the word to take. Lambano. Paralambano. It's to take. This is your regular, this is your standard taking to take. No. Could be a bird actually swoops down and takes them. Should be a bad way to. Yes. So yeah, you're right. Like disappearing would be a wrong interpretation of that. Which fortunately your text didn't say. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> so much for coming to me for help. How does the song go? One disappears and one's left standing still. They used to disappear. Yeah. See. <laughs> Know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh no, DC Talk made a remake of that know, song. But nobody listened to it. It wasn't as big as the original. In the 70s. You know what I'm oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we used to sing it real low and slow. <laughs> With the guitar and the granny glasses. I didn't need you. I have a question. This is just elaborating on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we get in 29 and following, it says, immediately after the tribulation, uh, signs uh, in the heaven... And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. And it gives a parable concerning signs of the times. Um... Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. If it weren't for the reference to Noah, I think that would be the natural reading of that. When you say... Hey, the elect are grabbed and they're from the four winds and you see them together, and that's good. Um, but he specifically references it's going to be like Noah. The flood takes people who aren't saved in the ark. And so then he goes right into, so hey, there's going to be two people and one of them's going to get taken. I, I mean, you... to raise your eye right up to that previous verse and go, oh, taken. Oh, not good. Flood took people and killed them. Or, sorry. No, no. Or, it could just be saying, it's too late. You know, Noah was saved. Noah was taken from that judgment. So we are taken from that judgment that's soon to be coming after, I mean, right after we are gathered, his elect, that's when pretty much, you know, God's coming. So and this is actually it, it would, but it says they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away uh, and it's this 
They went about their lives as usual. They did not understand. Noah entered the ark, and then there's this other group that did not understand, and the flood took them all away. And then he's saying, and he goes right into, hey, be ready. You need to be ready. Don't get taken away because you didn't understand. Be ready. And so uh, that song we just referenced, I uh, wish we'd all been ready, you know, two men walking in the field and disappeared and one left and That takes this verse and says, this is the rapture, people. You've got to be ready because the rapture is going to happen and takes people away. And I've always understood it that way, but I really don't think that's at all what he's getting at because he's talking about, hey, there's judgment, there's judgment, there's pouring out of wrath, there's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. It's the end of the people of Israel, like their end, not the end of them, but their end. And then God comes back and he gathers the elect together and then you move into this timeline of you got to be ready for that because if you're not ready, if you're not ready for Jesus coming, you're going to get taken away. And so we see an expounding of that in like the timeline of Revelation where it talks about going to judgment. Um, I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm just... I should have uh, sent you these questions, but I didn't think about them until now. Um, so when they're taken, what does that mean? Like, because in the end times, or for judgment, the wrath, it's poured out on the earth. So I always understood it that people that are not, you know, taken, the elect, those <coughs> are left to the earth, the wrath is on to them. So where are they taken? If they're taken from the earth, right? Or are they taken? Where do you think they're taken? Now, I'm probably, I, without much, um, without much forethought, I'm okay. It's probably not my understanding, but saying that I'm okay with something is really a moot point, but who cares when I'm okay with something. But in my head, uh, an interpretation of this that we saw Okay, it says taken as if okay, it gives a vivid description of two people in a field, but it's, maybe it's not a description of something. Okay, maybe it's more parabolic, and he's just saying, don't be like the people in the flood who didn't understand and then took away in wrath. And okay, well, that means, it doesn't say disappear. It doesn't say two people are there and one disappears. It's just saying one's taken wrath. And so maybe that means, um, you know, they experience the judgment, you know. I think there may be some possible confusion here. Now you're, you're, if I understand what you're saying is, this, this verse when it's talking about being taken, the rapture has already occurred previously, and this second coming, uh, you know, is the actual coming and setting up the millennial kingdom. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, that's that's the way I'm taking it. And I, were you on page with that? Were you like, yeah, this is end of the rapture, end of. I guess I was thinking, yeah, when he, when he's coming on the cloud, that's when, that's when he's coming. Like he's putting he's his coming feet on down. the cloud, and he collects his elect, and then, yeah, right, that would be the rapture, right? And then right. At, no, I don't think you're not going to see rapture in this passage. There's no rapture in this passage. I, you're right. Like you look at it and go. Man, that's rapture, right? He comes, he collects them, he takes them back to heaven. That's, that's, you're right in line with a lot of people who've seen this passage and go, yeah, that's exactly what it's talking about. Because it looks like that. Yeah. 
But I, it's just it's just not there. It's it's that's not the timeline he's laid out. What he's laying out is, hey Israel, this is for you. This is what's going to go down. There's some serious judgment, but then Jesus is coming back for those good grapes. You know, essentially, he's coming back for his elect, and that's why he's coming. And he's gathering them, all the people of Israel who have been faithful to Christ, to Christ. You know, comes back and he gathers them to himself. In right there at the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, he's gathering them, and whether that's some miraculous swooping them together and suddenly they're there, or whether that's uh, what do you see in the book of uh, Ezekiel? Doesn't it talk about the hills will be made flat and the valleys will be filled and the people will come back? And it talks about this great, you know, just like the people came back from Babylon and God brought them from their captivity and brought them back. So also there will be a time at the end when Jesus comes back, his feet are down on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, he goes into the Jerusalem through the east gates, he's back, his feet on the ground, he's ruling from Jerusalem. Now, mind you, this is a compilation of some Old Testament prophecy, and actually all that's Old Testament prophecy, isn't it? And then you get into the timeline of the book of Revelation, and you sort of see Ezekiel and the coming back, and Zephaniah and the splitting of the mountain, and Daniel and the 70 weeks, and... Psalm and the people, and you're like, oh my goodness, my head's just spinning. But yeah, I mean, this is, what I'm laying out is standard dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, all those big words for, uh, there's all this prophecy and it's fulfilled in these seven years and then into the millennium. And so if you take that timeline, it helps you see what's going on. I think it, this text fits even if you don't impose a timeline on it, but it helps to go, okay, what's the timeline here? Oh, okay. There's seven years of tribulation. The church is gone. They're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're chilling with Jesus in heaven, eating the supper. Uh, Israelites and Gentiles alike, who are all followers of Christ in you know, this, this period of time we're in now, get raptured. But then Jesus comes back. He gathers faithful Israel back to himself. You know, people who have just like the Old Testament desired, just like God desired for his people, brings them back. But when he brings them back, he's ushering them into the kingdom of God, like this thing that the disciples want to see happen. This. What we find out to be in Revelation, a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. Satan is bound. Fantastic. He's sitting on David's throne, ground-level water flowing from his throne and plants growing up and the tree of life and it's just sweet, you know, and 12 leaves for the 12 seasons bringing healing to the world. And that's what's about to be set up. But not everybody's going into that. There's, a, there's some people who survive the terrible tribulation period, even though it all ends in carnage. Some people live. But they're not going into the kingdom. They're going to a judgment that looks like... Matthew 25, separating the sheep from the goats. And so if you take a, a timeline from other scriptures, and you look at this one and go, oh, that's what he's getting at. It's, he's coming back, feet down, final coming, second coming's happened, rapture was seven years ago, goes into his city, gathers his people together, but some people who weren't ready for that get taken away to this judgment where they're not welcome into the morning reign of Christ. And that looks like 
Oh, where's that one? So there's a, there's a couple of right there for Matthew 16, 27. Things like this. 27. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Fair enough. Yeah. Second coming happens, there's judgment after that. Right. I just thought it was a really kind of a clear cross, you know, cross-reference to what was happening. Yeah, there's almost, especially with the sheep and the goat, there's like two gathers. He gathers the elect and he gathers the goats. And the sheep didn't go in, the goats don't. Yeah. So, Yeah, I understand the question. Uh, obviously, it's, I say obviously, oh, it's obvious to everyone. I don't know. Uh, it seems to be the person not getting judged. Therefore, it's faithful. Therefore, it's, I don't want to overstrain. That's the trouble with, um, uh, he was vividly portraying a future event, don't be, don't fail to be ready, or you'll be taken like the person in the flood. And now you look at that and say, well, wait a second, in the flood, there were never two people in a field, and one of them got flooded over, and one of them didn't, because one of them was in a boat, and one of them wasn't. You know, because there are two people in the field that both got taken. So, I don't want to overstrain a point. And that, so I get it, you're right. Like, if all the faithful people are gathered Israel, and here again, I, I, I think it's just saying, don't be that guy. It's not saying, hey, be a guy in a field who's ready. Uh, well, you don't have to be in a field if you don't want to. So I understand, I, I, I hate to, and that's where, that's one of the strong weaknesses that came out wrong. <laughs> that's one of the weaknesses of... Um, this conservative, evangelical, dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational, this view, you suddenly start finding details in everything, which, honestly, you might have strangled the text. I mean, you can make somebody say anything if you torture them, and you can do the same to a text. If you torture this text, it can give you a date, and a time, and a time of day, you know, if you really... Oh, it says it's don't let it be on the Sabbath, and hopefully it's not in the winter. And so it's going to be a Sabbath in the winter when Jesus comes back. Or no, that's going to be halfway through the tribulation. Okay, I've seen it. I've seen people do it. And I go, ooh, you know, hit the brakes there. I think you've tortured this text to say what you want it to say. It's going to be a Sabbath. in De- Oh, it's, it's in December, so it's going to be... But that's, oh, but Israeli winter. Oh, but it gets coldest in... February, and it gets really kind of particular. So, it's a good question to ask. I think it might be a word picture. That's my answer. So you're saying it's outside of the time? I'm saying... It's a word of advice, but it's not within the timeline. I'm saying not every detail of that particular um, saying refers to 
some actual series of events. Like, there won't necessarily be actually two literal people in the field, but the point is, this is going to happen, there's going to be a judgment of people, some of them are going to be taken at a particular time, it does fit into the timeline, but don't torture that to say, there's this, oh, but no, wait a second, some people are in Israel, some people aren't, and there's this third group that still has time, and maybe Jesus is still coming, slowly comes down, some people have already been gathered to him, some people are already judged because they're going to be damned, and then some people, as Jesus comes down, are going to have extra time to, well, it just doesn't say that, you know, like, just be careful. Um, One of the explanations that I've heard before, and this has been a while since I studied this, but so the Lord is saying here that um, as in Noah's time, and he says, and that the flood came and took them all away, how? In death. They were drowned. They were dead. Only eight survived, except also the ninth, which was Enoch, which I believe is the picture of the rapture. But, so there eight survived. Everyone else, 100% were taken. They were all taken. But then you go down here and he says, now, to make the comparison, there's going to be a time of great death where judgment will come in physical death. It will be a 50% death. And if you look in Revelation, there's a time when a third of the world is gleaned and there's a time when a fourth... Or it's a fourth and a third. But if you work it out, it comes out to like a half of the world's population at that time will be taken in death. And so, yes, I used to believe that this two minute walking, you know, the song, that it was taken in the rapture. I no longer believe that. I believe that this is, they are taken in death because it's, the Lord is, to me, specifically linking the judgment at Noah's time with the judgment of the tribulation time. Yeah. It's also in the other equivalent passage in Luke, where they point back and link to it. They were saying the same thing. One will be turned and two will be in bed, one will be taken, the other will be left, two women will be grinding grains, the other one will be taken, the other left, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about either, so they say, Where, Lord? The Pharisees. Well, there's some of us because they didn't understand. Yeah, actually, that's that's cool. I, I I think I didn't take my own advice, and I went like it has to be this particular event in this timeline. But yeah, maybe it's he's trying to say, hey, some are going to get taken to death, and I'm just trying to say death here, and that's. <coughs> And I've tried to fit it into a, this has to happen, Jesus comes, and then there's this point where some people are taken away, and maybe that's not exactly what's going to maybe it's just saying, lots of people are going to die. Is the tribulation the same as, like, God's wrath? Like, is there a difference? I mean, we have this tribulation in time where there's going to be, the times are going to be hard, but where... God's wrath come upon those that are accepting him, like the judgment, like that's separate, right? Um, or is that the same? Yeah, somebody else better equipped to answer that question? 
I mean, obviously the tribulation it's not is a lot of God's it. wrath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's reserved for that. Um, and it has a purpose. I mean, that tribulation, in fact, even the great tribulation, where you see the almost divided in two sections. Um, it's all judgment, but the last three and a half years is even worse than the first three. Um, it ends ultimately um, in a lot of people being sent to the lake of fire. Um, so I think it's all tight there with God's wrath. But it has a purpose. So like the Antichrist, he is, he's allowing the Antichrist to do what he does as part of his judgment. God will, just like he used Nebuchadnezzar, like he used, um, I mean, God used these foreign powers to judge Israel, but then they had to face judgment as well. Yeah. Um, wrath is actually an interesting... Uh, wrath. So wrath is an interesting study. I don't think wrath Wrath is a uh, divine characteristic or uh, is inherent to the divine nature. I don't think, and anything, when I say that, I mean something particular by it. Something God is, and if he weren't that, he would he'd be a different God. Like he has, like God is loving. God always loves. Our God is loving. And that is a divine characteristic, what it means to be divine. Um, because he reveals that to us. Uh, but I don't think wrath is the same. I don't think it's one of those things that he is. Because I think he wasn't wrathful for any of what we call eternity past. You know, As he existed in himself. I say prior to creation as if there was time before time. But there wasn't time. I just say it for our sake. And after the consummation of all things, it, does God have to be filled with wrath to be him? I think there still is the outpouring of God's wrath. People still experience um, God's wrath. But I would say it would be, it's either sort of a, an expression of his love or an expression of his justice. Or holiness, yeah. Or an expression of patience, yeah. And so, like, just like right now we experience, hopefully, the justice of the United States government because we can go to work and earn a living and operate freely. But right now, there's people in Champaign County Jail, the pokey, who are experiencing the judgment of the, the justice of the state, too. But it's sort of that nasty side of justice. They are getting what they deserve from justice. But not because justice is different. It's just because their relationship to it is different. So justice is the same for you and for the guy in the pokey, but you're related to it differently. They're on the side of it that says you have to be incarcerated because you did certain things. And you're on the side of it that says right now, for at least, you don't have to be incarcerated because of your actions regarding the state. And you're a political being 
you have political relationships, you live in a state, all these things. And so, same with holiness. You get to experience holiness in heaven because your mind explodes because God is in your head and it's awesome. Just like people get to experience holiness in hell, but they experience it differently as wrath, as judgment. They're experiencing the same thing, just their relationship to it is different. Uh, much of our life is that way. Your relationship to God uh, and Charles Dawkins' relationship to God are different, but that doesn't make God different. Um, Richard Dawkins. Sorry. I don't know where I was getting that from. Um, so, to say, what do you mean by wrath? Wrath is this. It's an experience of the holiness of God. And so, is the wrath in this period we're calling the tribulation, which is sort of shorthand for Daniel's 70th week. There's this week, there's this group of seven years that's out there still, we're waiting for it. It's in the timeline of human history and we're waiting for it to start. Um, it's going to kick off at some point and it's going to be pretty horrid and it's going to have a lot to do, and it's going to have everything to do, in fact, with the nation of Israel. And it's specifically the people of Israel and Jerusalem. Not so much the nation, it's the people and Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 has said, it's appointed for your city and your holy people. And so there's this Jerusalem, Israelite, seven years, that prophecy has a lot to say about. I think it has a lot to say about it's the pouring out of wrath on Israel and on all of humanity in its relationship to Israel. And so, yeah, it's a lot of experiencing the wrath of God because that's what this nation now has earned. You know, their actions have brought about this kind of relationship with God. Ouch, don't let your actions do that kind of thing. Now, wrath, more specifically in text, it talks about you know, the wrath of God in lots of different texts throughout the Old and New Testament. And those are more, you have to apply those specifically. Like, well, how does that one relate to this period of time? Well, yeah, it's a good question. But wrath generally as a theological concept is just something you're going to experience as a relationship with the holiness of God. Uh, which probably doesn't answer your question. <laughs> Sam, this thing about the one person being, that would also kind of apply to what it would be like in the rapture. Some are going to be taken and some are going to be left behind. It would be conjecture. Yeah, that's I mean, some are going to be taken. I mean, that's actually what's going to happen. Uh, but it's I mean, hard to say how... going to be taken and the people that aren't are going to be left behind. But the only trouble with that is that taken is specifically related to they're not going to be taken like people were taken in the flood. No, I know. Right, I know I'm that. just saying, like... I'm just saying that's what... That's what sure, I mean, that's how like we... That's what the song could be applied to. Oh, yeah, I think that's exactly what the song is for. And it was, says, what do we know about? I mean, what we know about the rapture is that uh, Jesus will descend in the clouds of glory and we will meet him in the air and the trump shall sound and the dead shall rise first and you get to First Thessalonians 4, you know, and that's where you're kind of like hardcore rapture. But, I mean, if it, the trouble is if taken specifically means die in agony, which is what it means, then it 
doesn't look like the rapture because the rapture doesn't look like half the people dying in agony. So yeah, we can just go, well, in English it says taken and without any reference to anything else, that's what it's going to look like. Yeah, sure. Why not? It's a really cool song. It's a good song. <laughs> well, we don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be left behind. Tim LaHaye says so. No, no, I, this is question time. If you apologize for your questions, that gets confusing. So, this program, uh, you explained how he's gathering, comes in the cloud, he's gathering his people for his, to set up his kingdom. Then what scripture do we read or refer to where, as believers, were taken before the tribulation happens? Like, what... What timeline, or I guess the timeline you would... Say I, would yeah, I would say that. Happens. I would say that, yep. Like, what, can you refer me to anything? Or Somebody want to jump in? You want to go and give her some... First Thessalonians 4 is your strong Pauline statement yeah. of... Verse 16 through 17, 18. And then a description of it, which I think people muddle those two together and get a wrong idea is 1 Corinthians 15, which will describe uh, 15 verses uh, 51 through 54. We will not all all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But people confuse that and think we will be taken up. We will be harpazo, forcefully grabbed in a twinkling of an eye. But I don't think that that's what it says in 1 Thessalonians. I think the change of our bodies being changed, if we're dead in Christ, from corruptible to incorruptible will be instantaneous. From If we are alive and remain, then if our mortal will become immortal instantaneously. But that does not describe how we are caught up. In fact, something, I read an article uh, that there are, th- well, he was talking about, in fact, I think it was, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum was talking about this. I think that's where I heard it. That there's military terms here used. And so the Lord himself shall descend from with a loud command. And that is a military term. When the commander steps out of his tent, he gives the command. This is it. Let's go. And then the trump sounds. So the and the way that he describes it, the Lord will come out and he'll say to Gabriel, who is his lawyer, um, or his announcer, this is it. And then Gabriel will say to the trumpet, sound the trumpet. And those are two military terms because the commands for a military action were given by a trumpet. And then it makes sense that it, another military term is used, although he didn't use this one, that harpazo, it doesn't have to do, it, it's the word to snatch, to take, but it's also forcefully or irresistibly. So we will not be able to resist his taking us away. And so there's three, this is a military action. He's coming like the bridegroom to get the bride, and the bride will not be able to resist. No one will be able to stop the bride from going with him. And and then that uh, moment in the twinkling of an eye refers to how we will be changed, not how quickly we will be taken. And so, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, you get rapture passages, and um, I just want to point out, she's using the word harpazo, it's a Greek term that means snatch or take away, uh, snatch up, grab, and the reason she uses that is because 
partially at least because there's a lot of controversy around the term rapture. You'll hear rapture is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Well, yeah, that word isn't, but neither is the word trinity. So, you know. uh, Harpazo is translated into the Latin as what, rapturo, and so we get the word rapture. It's just the word snatch up. So, uh, so, First Corinthians, first Corinthians 15, chapter 15. Oh, I might, well, I'm, I'm referring to first Thessalonians. I'm sorry, yeah. 4, 16, you said? Yes, yeah. 4, 16. And now, the timing of when that happens. Well, I was just going to say, see, I, I, it sounds to me like it's the same verse of Matthew. Yeah. Sorry, Matthew 31. Except for the Noah verse. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't get into the Noah part. Talk about, but the first, uh, and people send his angels with the great trumpet call, and, and they will gather the elect. Yeah, and so there you get into, like... Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm just, it just sounds a lot. Yeah, you're banging. It's not about the same, but I'll read more. I, I think the there's confusion because when you say elect... There's actually two groups of elect, and that's where I think confusion is coming. We have the elect, the, the true believers in the church age, they're elect. And then you have the elect in the tribulation, they are the Jews who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation after the rapture has occurred. So there's two different groups of elect that are being talked about. Another thing that was interesting, and I think I shared this with Wes uh, last week maybe, that there is confusion over which trumpet will be sound. And I looked it up, but that the trump that is mentioned, the trumpet call of God, that it's actually trump call of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, and that the, let's see, in, and for the trump will sound in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a specific Greek word, and that's the only place that that, that trump is used in the New Testament. Uh, it's trump, and all the other places are trumpet, but it's a different, it doesn't have that ending on it. So this trump, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, I believe is a unique trump, and it's not referring to the other trumpets that are mentioned in Revelation or in uh, Matthew. I didn't know that before, like, um, yeah, and that's where you get into, um, it often sounds like splitting hairs when you get into word differences, uh, but prophecy is a very particular thing, and if it was more, if God gave us from heaven, uh, a chart book of prophecy and it's all charts and you know I've inspired this diagram in the back of your Bible you'll want to reference that here you know see chart 7 Paul sketched it out for you we kind of see that as well I'd be helpful but it's just not how prophecy rolls in scripture and you can see the impetus by large groups of Christendom to say hey this is just mystery you know it's just kind of this happens, Christ is coming back, it's all you need to know, but um, it's worth the effort to start breaking down what's actually being said and actually going, wait, 
You know, and if I want to be consistent with the revelation of the Word of God, it can't be the same thing. You get this in like Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. It talks about a little horn arising, and this little horn is, shows up at the end of all things. But both passages talk about a little horn that does terrible things. And then you start comparing the two, and you realize that even though it's the same terminology, similar terminology, it's not the same thing. It can't be the same guy. You're like, well, it's a little horn. It's separated by one chapter. It's the same guy. Yeah, but it can't be. Like, you get into the particulars of what goes on, and it just can't be. And that's why certain viewpoints don't write detailed commentaries about certain parts of Scripture because, I don't know, it's the same thing. And as soon as we get into the details, it just doesn't work. And so you go, hey, First Thessalonians 4, Matthew 24, it sounds the same. You're exactly right. It does sound the same. And that's why you would be inclined to go, Hey, why, why make it so confusing? <laughs> why this timeline? Why not just go, he's coming back, bad stuff's going to happen, but don't worry, he's coming back. Well, yeah, but man, you get into the particulars and it just ah, can't be the same thing. And, uh, and But then there's always that danger of you go too far and you go, no, 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 no. It's, if you get in more particulars of this one Greek word that kind of can mean, can mean two things and therefore... And you get into these uber particular, I'm going to lay out for you. I've got a book at home detailing for me the identity of the Antichrist is actually going to be Julius Caesar reborn, his spirit in the per And you go, and they get that all from Scripture. It has to be this because of when this was written, where it was written, and this prophecy and that prophecy, and they write, and you get, it's got to be Julius Caesar reborn. And you go, some point you needed to like go for a walk in the sunshine and get out of your study and just kind of talk to a few people and go, wait a second, I think I might have gone a little footloose here. Um, so yeah, this is that, that danger of going, oh, no, 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 you can know more, you can know more, you can know, well, at some point you're like, man, that's what we know. And some of that I probably got wrong. So... But you get into the particulars of 1 Thessalonians 4, and it seems to be somebody's snatched up and it's not Israel, and you get into Matthew 24, and Christ is coming back for Israel. And it's just a different thing. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot more to talk about, and uh, I'd love to stop. So let's, let's, uh, let's cease and desist and pray and eat. If you don't mind. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, so much of your word, and I pray that we...